You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, I'm Lauren, Education Editor at Campus Review. Today I spoke to Linguistics Professor at the University of Sydney, Nick Enfield, also the Director of the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. He's now a key team member of the university's Post-Truth Initiative. So we spoke about that. Could you just begin by explaining what post-truth means and can you give some examples of it? Post-truth refers to a family of problems, really, that are being cited widely at the moment in relation to the state of public discourse. Um, Essentially, you know, when people use the term post-truth, they're talking about things like um, propaganda and lying uh, in sort of political discourse. Those things are obviously um, well known. Um, they might be talking about uh, a sort of manipulation of information through uh, media on the internet, especially where, um, you know, for example, fake news has thrived. Uh, fake news is obviously a little bit different from standard kind of propaganda because uh, it clothes itself as um, an actual, you know, actual news stories, but in fact it c- contains falsehoods and um, and these things get picked up and, and sort of uh, passed on and so forth. So those, you know, there are various examples where uh, false stories got uh, forwarded on to people and um, they sort of growed and growed and growed like um, conspiracy theories and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's a sort of a, a dimension of post-truth that's something somewhat new because of the, the media that are currently kind of used. And then I guess... Um, a further aspect of what post-truth is is really the kind of uh, disregard that we're now seeing for the first time in public discourse for um, you know for the idea that public figures should be held accountable to things like facts uh, seems obvious but what we see is people like Donald Trump who's the obvious um, example kind of shrugging his shoulders at the suggestion that uh, he needs to provide evidence for the claims that he's making or even that uh, you know a uh, a journalist might say to him for example uh, you've stated that people in New Jersey were celebrating in large crowds when the Twin Towers came down Uh, no one has ever been shown any evidence that this happened and Trump shrugs his shoulders and says oh I know it happened that would be an example of sort of post-truth discourse where you know evidence is not really at issue and someone in a position of power can simply make an assertion without backing it up and obviously it's been a big issue in america and even in europe but is it also a big issue in australia it's a problem in australia like it is uh everywhere i think that One reason why it's a problem here is because we are part of a global um, media world. We're part of a global information economy. Uh, We're reading news that's internationally produced and that spreads internationally. And we're reading stuff, you know, online that's that's global. So there are no real sort of borders. So when you say, is it a problem in Australia? There are clearly no borders to 
between us and the rest of the world in terms of the sort of information that we we have access to so in that sense yeah it's a problem for us whether it's a problem in our internal affairs um the answer is yes to an extent um there's a wonderful piece just published on the conversation by my colleague benedetta bravini on post-truth as a strategy by the adani corporation in trying to promote their um plans to do coal mining um and so a lot of sort of um misinformation falsehood distraction of attention all these classic kind of post-truth moves being used for sort of promoting uh their agenda and for dismissing you know the the you know people's subjections to what it is they're trying to do so we can see in the australian context these kind of uh problems with 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 the post-truth sort of discourse um you know actually actually playing a role i do think though that in australia people are perhaps a little bit less susceptible in that i think the population is somewhat more moderate on the whole than in places like the u.s can you tell me about the work of the post-truth initiative yeah the post-truth initiative is a initiative funded by something called the Sydney Research Excellence Initiative, funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research here at the University. And what we've been doing this year is really laying the groundwork for kind of building up common ground and building up an understanding for this problem and the sort of extent of it. And we're really uh, kind of amazed by the extent of the problem and the extent to which... uh, you know, it reaches into too many domains of the research world and the academic world. So we've been holding um, regular seminars, uh, regular working meetings. We've had, uh, we publish a series that I just mentioned um, in the conversation. So there's a post-truth initiative series of uh, opinion pieces that we've been putting out. And we've been holding public events under the Sydney Ideas um, Forum We've got quite a large um, representation of people who are interested in environmental issues. So the Sydney Environment Institute uh, has members who are part of our initiative. Um, and they are, of course, looking at questions around climate change, sort of double speak in the, in the post-truth sort of context around things like the concept of clean coal, which, you know, is a kind of classic bit of doublespeak um, post-truth, you know, language where which which doesn't make any sense, but the, but it is nevertheless wielded um, in in kind of conversation. So uh, members of our initiative have done analysis of those types of terms of phrase. So you just mentioned academic fraud. Uh, yep. Can you talk about the work that you're doing in particular in that regard, and also how big of an issue academic fraud is based on what research you've done? Academic fraud is a serious issue at the moment, in particular in relation to new ways of publishing and the fact that so much publication is done online and where a lot of predatory publishers are getting people to getting academics to pay them so that they can publish reports that are that are submitted and because it's a money-making business a lot of these publishers which have popped up recently 
are not applying the usual standards of academic rigor, such as peer review and, and, and this kind of thing. So that opens up the possibility for academic fraud. Jenny Byrne is a member of our, uh, of our initiative, and she is the one who's been doing research on this, and she's done some incredible sort of sleuthing. She is a cancer specialist, a geneticist, and she noticed, I think around a year ago, some papers being published on a gene that she personally knew a lot about. She saw reports about new papers on that gene, and she was interested and somewhat surprised to see these reports coming out. And she looked into it and saw that there were, you know, it wasn't just one or two new papers. There was a whole kind of stack of papers that had sort of come out around the same time. And she looked more closely at them and realized that they were essentially sort of uh, recombinations of bits and pieces. They had the same data being reported in slightly different ways. They had little bits of different text here and there. But essentially what had happened, she, she found out, she discovered was that people had been selling essentially these um, papers. Um, this was was, a, was something that was happening in China, and that's one of the places where the problem is currently quite acute. People were essentially paying money for data, paying money for papers that could then be sent off and published, and, you know, in order to achieve career goals. But, of course, the great cost of that is that claims are being made in scientific literature that, that are simply based on falsehoods. So... In her area, which is, um, she's a specialist in child cancer, you can imagine that, um, you know, that's a domain where you don't want to be making mistakes. So moving on to another element of the initiative, the bullshit detector. I sort of have a very um, vague understanding of what it is, but can you go more into depth about how it works? Well, at the moment, this is something that's under development by Joel Nothman. He's the engineer at the Center for Translational Data Science at Sydney University. The idea started with us sort of recognizing the problem of fact-checking when so much kind of bullshit was circulating, for example, politicians' uh, speeches during um, election time and all sorts of political discourse. There are new technologies available for really sort of moving fast with this type of fact-checking to do that in real time, but also to try to draw out and sort of exploit some of the findings that psychologists have made about, you know, what might constitute a lie, whether people are consistent in the way they talk and so forth. And so what Joel's been exploring is how to apply some of the findings from what's known about how people lie and what they do when they lie, to materials that we have from political discourse, so essentially um, political speeches and, and, and records of, uh, of political discourse. It's not something that we're going to create overnight where you can sort of, you know, pull up an app on your phone and it will light up red if the person across from you is bullshitting. What we're really trying to do here is to take a step towards quantifying in some way or sort of detecting in a systematic way over a collection of texts to really see if there are signals of the kind of thing that we mean when we when we talk about bullshit. So I should clarify that the term bullshit, it's a, it's a, it has an everyday meaning, but it also has a technical meaning in philosophy, the philosophy of language. There's a philosopher by the name of Harry Frankfurt who wrote a book called On Bullshit, which is widely cited in this connection. And he distinguishes between lying on the one hand and bullshitting on the other hand. Lying is where you know what the truth is and you're deliberately saying 
something that's not true in order to deceive your audience to to hide the truth or to you know obscure it in some way bullshitting by contrast is where the speaker actually doesn't care if what they're saying is true or false they don't know and they don't really mind all they're doing is saying something that they think will have a certain effect so this is typical you know in sort of political discourse where you know well in the kind of trump era anyway i mean lying is one thing that you can sort of pull out through fact checking that's somewhat weaker in this day and age in some interesting ways but uh, bullshitting has this other property of being sort of impervious to fact-checking precisely because the speaker doesn't really care if it's true or not, and that's one of the kind of toughest challenges. So just to wrap up, can you tell me about the intended sort of practical effects of the kind of work that the Post-Truth Initiative is doing, and have there been any results that have been put to you so far? What we've been doing this year is really trying to understand the nature of the problem and approach it in an interdisciplinary way where we can really learn from each other about what would define the problem and what you know what would what would have promise as a solution to the problem. And so a symposium that we're going to be holding in November partly is a kind of a closed workshop and partly is a, a public event on the 20th of November. And that's going to be an occasion where we're really going to try to chart out what we'd like to do in terms of scaling up and thinking about uh, solutions in particular. But we've been talking about what the solutions might be, and some of them have to do with dealing with, you know, essentially laws and rules and regulations surrounding problems that, like I mentioned earlier, about things like uh, scientific fraud and academic integrity. But there's a, a another sort of major part of the work that we want to do and we are now developing, which is really about I think it's a fairly obvious but very important part of what needs to be done, which is really raising people's awareness of these problems and, and raising the literacy, if you like, of, uh, of people when it comes to argumentation, when it comes to the use of evidence to make a point, when it comes to critically evaluating a piece of news that comes uh, people's way. So we're certainly exploring ways in which we can kind of increase people's literacy about the value of news, the properties of news, but not only that, also the pitfalls of our own reasoning and our own thinking as individuals that we're, we're very susceptible to kind of sensational news stories and so forth and we'll, we'll, we'll click on them and we'll post them before we've even really sort of figured out whether they're right or wrong, but acting on our impulses or on our sort of desires, if you like. One of the big things I think we really want to be able to do is to chart out sort of a plan for how we can really contribute to raising awareness of these problems, um, particularly in younger people who you know, who really need this, you know, more than anyone. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. Sure, you're welcome.